I'm convinced that the way the deals will look will be different, Sakib, over the coming years. And by the time we get to 2030, it's going to be dramatically different. But I still think that a person will still be in the middle of it. Thank you for tuning in to Say Hi to the Future's Leadership Forum, a space where you will hear perspectives from global industry executives on human ingenuity, how they catalyze it to unlock value and realize their organization's true potential. We will keep it real. You will hear what's worked well and learnings from instances where things could have worked better. I'm your host, Saki Bali, partner at Spiderworks and explorer Say Hi to the Future, the fast-growing community highlighting the human side of ingenuity. Our guest today is Jack King, CEO at Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver, an executive with a career showcased by an outstanding record of management performance, staff and business development and achievements, natural and composed leader, strategic thinker and planner, and high impact change agent. Most of all, Jeff is a deal maker with campus awards from Canada emanate today. Welcome, Jeff. And thank you for taking time out from your deal-making schedule. <laughs> Happy to be here. Thanks, Thakab. Uh, I'm excited to be on the show. So, Jeff, uh, you know, so far I've introduced you in, in how one would read your profile. Mm. Uh, but would would love it if you could let our listeners hear in your voice how you wish to introduce yourself to them. And as you do, please do demystify for our audience what we may all get wrong about deal-making as a skill mm. on the one end. And then, what's the role of real estate board? Okay. What are they? What the mandate is? Just throw some light on that. So, okay. please take it away. Okay. All right. So, uh, starting off with the uh, uh, sort of the micro sense of, on myself, um, uh, the uh, uh, I think that's a, a very flattering uh, description uh, of me. I like to see myself as a bit of a futurist and uh, and trying to take a strategic view of uh, where industries are going. Uh, I spent the uh, my career really in three different stages. First stage in reinsurance. The largest portion was in entertainment and music rights and and, uh, and uh, uh, intellectual property. About 20 years in that, to be honest. And then the last couple of years, I've been in real estate at the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver, as you mentioned. Um, the uh, the deal making, uh, most of that activity happened when I was in the intellectual property space and it was acquiring uh, other companies that did similar things. Um, most of them outside of Canada, um, but had different types of relationships. But a lot of it was with towards a view towards incremental growth and, and leveraging, um, you know, the way I look at it, it's almost like the old Reese's peanut butter cup ads. And, you know, you've got a peanut butter factory. I've got a chocolate factory. Together we can make something new and different that has a value add. And I think that was a big part of how the mergers and acquisitions work, uh, was, uh, so successful and worked so well for, for my, myself and my previous employer. Now, on the, in terms of making deals, uh, the one thing that, uh, you know, uh, I'm a very people-focused person. And I really sort of, you know, uh, I think people really have to see what's in it for them. And I think a big part that uh, sometimes people will lose track of is that if there's 12 items that you're working on on a deal or on development of a, uh, of a strategy or a, a new arrangement or whatever it is, the uh, uh, if there's 12 items, you don't have to win 100% on all 12 of them because you want to have a chance for the other person to have some wins and feel good about the deal as well. Um, it's not about just being a tough negotiator. It's about finding common ground and moving the, uh, the needle forward. Uh, I've had, I've been fortunate to have a lot of good success with that and worked with some really great partners around that front, including during my time at the real estate board of greater Vancouver with this type of mentality. And I find it's much more 
proactive and well-received. And I, I, I kind of think it fits well with the, the sensitivities of the current world. You know, the, you know, COVID taught us, you know, we are all vulnerable. We're all exposed. And I think there's opportunities here that, uh, we can maybe reimagine how business gets done. So I think those are all important and key features. Now, real estate boards, what do they do? That's a good question. So there's a, there's two or three main things that they do. First and foremost is the real estate board of greater Vancouver runs the multiple listing service for the, uh, uh, for most of the lower mainland of uh, British Columbia along with the Fraser Valley Real Estate Board who handles the Fraser Valley area. The mobile listing service allows the realtors to uh, promote homes for sale. And of course, allows the public to take a look through realtor.ca and other venues to see what properties are available and, and do some online research, things like that. That's a huge portion of what uh, our activities are. We also do some government relations and advocacy work, both in terms of affordable housing and some progress that we'd like to see around buyer's rights and uh, and the evolution of the deal of real estate. And then there's also work around training and education and professional development. Specifically, we've really zeroed in on the managing brokers and the realtors themselves. You know, everything from ethics to contract to uh, uh, new technologies and how to manage their businesses a little bit better and help them to be stronger and more successful. Uh, the RevGV, Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver, has a little bit over 15,000 realtors as members. Uh, and uh, is one of the largest boards in the country. Uh, the largest is Toronto and Vancouver, second largest, the, the neck and neck with Quebec, depending on how you measure it, in terms of dollars or a uh, number of deals. Just to give you some sense of scale, uh, there's about thirty-five to 40,000 deals uh, a year, and they represent uh, around $40 billion. Uh, wow. So it's a, a sizable you know, footprint. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, but I think there's a, a, a transformation that's starting to happen in the industry. And to me, it kind of feels like the way music did in the late 90s, early 2000s. You know, and for the music industry uh, at that time, the internet was here, but things like Napster and LimeWire and Kazaa and YouTube and Netflix and uh, streaming services uh, weren't around yet, but people knew they were coming. Uh, and eventually they came and some of the music company, the rights holders really leaned in and adapted well and dealt with that and, and prepared themselves for this future state. Uh, other ones disappeared, frankly, you know, and, uh, and some of the names of, you know, that were household names in the seventies and eighties. And, uh, we all, you know, the, you know, 12 CDs for a penny and all that type of stuff, all that, all those things disappeared. Um, but some companies uh, uh, really leaned in and ad- adapted to the technolo- technological changes and did quite well, uh, and including the place where I worked, and I was fortunate enough to be a, a big part of that. And when I look at what's going on with real estate, I can see similar parallels starting to emerge. You know, the, uh, the rise of Web 3.0, really, allowing more complex transactions online and through digital processes. Like, uh, we call it a digital deal room, really. It's creating new opportunities around different things along those uh, uh, types of scenarios, not unlike what uh, uh, companies like the record labels and publishers and performing rights organizations were dealing with 20 years ago. Much smaller number of deals, tens of thousands, not hundreds of billions, but, you know, multi-million dollar transactions, of course, sure. not, not sure. fractions of a penny. And But the, the, it's interesting. And the, the thing that keeps resonating in the back of my mind as this is happening is that you know, the consumer is undefeated. You know, the consumer will find ways to get either data or information 
And there's almost a relentless, certainly since the birth of the internet, there's been a relentless push to get, to have uh, intermediaries out of the mix, you know, and uh, travel agents and um, uh, insurance brokers and uh, and other folks who, and stockbrokers were mainstays for, for generations. Uh, were slowly picked apart and, and, and repurposed into a different way. Doesn't mean they don't exist now, but sure. they've, they've moved into a different area, you know, and I can sort of see similar types of things happening with financial institutions, legal professions, you know, the rise of AI, different things like that. And that will all have an impact on real estate and how real estate's transacted. So the real estate boards is, have a good role in helping with that. This is, this is fascinating. And I, you know, yes, we all are experiencing this every single day. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's not every day that I get someone like the Jeff King give me perspective like you just did. So, thank. I'm just curious. So, will would the real estate board of Greater Vancouver in the end is it on the consumer side or is it on the broker side? Like, where would you? How would you think about the mandate? I'm just curious. So, our our members are the brokers and the and the realtors. Um, yeah, they pay monthly dues and they pay uh, fees per transaction uh, on MLS. But the public is a key stakeholder, right? So, uh, you know, a big part of what uh, what I'm wanting to bring to the, the entire transaction is increasing the transparency and trust in the, the uh, in all aspects of the real estate deal, and the buyers and sellers, you know, the uh, uh, the uh, the people looking to buy the home, we're largely focused on residential. The people looking to buy the home or sell the home are fundamental in our conversations about how we structure this to uh, to do it. I'm convinced that the way the deals will look will be different, Sakib, over the coming years. And by the time we get to 2030, it's going to be dramatically different. But I still think that a person will still be in the middle of it. And the key view in my mind, my vision, is that a realtor will be that Sherpa. They'll help the plan. They're not going to, you know, buy the mountain, but they're going to help you climb it. And you're going to you're going to do the transaction, all the rest of it. The similar process around uh, commercial and office uh, real estate. But those are slightly different because the the nature of the buyers and sellers are usually a bit more sophisticated. There's other factors at play, but a lot of our focus is around um, the, the 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 realtors themselves, people facilitating the transactions, but with a mind towards the general public and, and ensuring that there's trust in the ecosystem. Helpful, very helpful. Now I have you know my mind right now is racing in in sort of two areas that I definitely want your your point of view on. And then we get into the meat of the conversation of, of what we uh, would be here to talk about. But the two issues, one is very topical and the other one is very real. The one that's topical is just all the wildfires that are going through right now, BC, mm-hmm. which is horrible and it, it's tragic and all that, right? I'm sure, and it's also displacing people, it's also, does the real estate board have a, a, a thought how it goes about, does, does it have a say? Uh, obviously the fires themselves are devastating. And uh, and are extremely uh, t- traumatic, um, and in uh, uh, full candor, I have a huge personal sensitivity around fires and such. Uh, I lost a parent to a house fire uh, uh, many years ago. Uh, it's foremost in my mind, almost on a daily basis. Uh, and then when you see the devastation that's happened in uh, in uh, in Maui and in the, the interior of British Columbia and in the Yukon and in Eastern Canada, it boggles the mind about uh, the the devastation and the horror. On the brass tax of it, uh, the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver has given towards the Red Cross effort, uh, fun- has given financially towards it, and we're, uh, we're very proud of the work we do around uh, the Realtors Care Program, which is a fundraising program that realtors do annually 
either to help different social causes or help with homelessness and, and different things like that. Um, it hasn't been decided yet for this year, but I'm sure that the fires and the displacement around that, the various real estate boards, uh, of which the Vancouver one's the largest one in BC, will have a, uh, uh, will undoubtedly be quite active in that space. I think I was more, more about, on the one end, it's people getting displaced, so that's one side of it. And the other side is, at some point, I need to think about rebuilding uh, and, yeah. and getting them back into home. So, so I'm sure there's there. And then, obviously, the second topic, which is which is very, very close to uh, a conversation that's happening in many different places, not just in Vancouver, but which is all around affordable housing. Like, mm-hmm. I can t- tell you, Jeff, I don't think my 20-year-old will be able to afford a down payment at any given point in time. I don't think my 13-year-old would, uh, you know, as she gets into the workforce, will be able to do that unless there's help from the parents. Like, so how are we thinking about it? Yeah, I, uh, it's a complex issue, you know, and for every buyer, there's a seller who's viewing the home as a, an investment nest egg and a retirement plan or a program to get children through college or university and all those elements. But affordable housing, particularly in Vancouver and Toronto, are major issues. Uh, these are uh, expensive markets, certainly in Canada, and uh, even globally, are rising in profile in terms of uh, uh, the challenges in affording houses, especially the uh, the down payment part. That's a challenging piece because people are relying on the bank of mom and dad to uh, to help finance this stuff. I think there's two or three elements to it, and and I, uh, they're they're related uh, but not directly. You know, the the rise of homelessness, particularly in Vancouver, is quite alarming. And I think that uh, there's some broad things as a society that we should be looking to do about how to handle and deal with those things. Some of the Scandinavian countries are working on making housing a human right in their constitutions. Um, it does not exist in the Canadian constitution at this time, but it is in some legislation and uh, and some provinces are considering it. And it is in some federal legislation, but it's not enshrined as healthcare or education or other things like that. And I, I do think there's a bigger picture opportunity there which would start to shift some of the conversations around it. So that's one aspect about the underhoused uh, folks that uh, that I think is a major concern for people. But more to your point, the key element around uh, the the younger generation, people born after 2000, will they ever see, will they ever own a home? Or what will home ownership look like? I do think new models will continue to emerge. You know, neobanking, uh, not to be confused with neo credit card, but neobanking where uh, tech companies are working with banking partners to come up with different models and things like fractional home ownership, I think are likely to rise. They're, they're currently not really available in Canada, but they are operating in other jurisdictions uh, globally. I think those things will start to arise. And another factor is the general overall economy of Canada. We're about to see over the next 12 to 15 years, the largest transfer of generational wealth in human history. Uh, it's going to be particularly noticeable in Western Europe and North America uh, as our parents and grandparents uh, move on or their requirements change, all the rest of it. That'll have a dynamic flow of what's going on and with the uh, uh, with the different issues. Having said that, Canada is taking a strategic view towards uh, growing our population to bring in skilled workers and to accelerate uh, against what's a declining birth rate. You know, about 500,000 immigrants are coming to Canada annually. You know, sometimes a little bit less, sometimes a little more. But that's generally the plan for the next few years. About 300,000 of them end up in southern Ontario. About 100,000 end up in southern British Columbia. And the rest are kind of sprinkled around the rest of the country. Those people have to live somewhere. 
and that's yeah. causing different pressure. You know, they're not going in and buying ten million dollar homes, but they're uh, but they're adding pressure. They have to live someplace, and that's putting pressure on starter homes, condominiums, other things like that. So there needs to be an opportunity to increase the supply of homes, particularly at the you know uh, what used to be called the entry level, the starter home type thing, and at the the the, uh, at the more of the front end piece of it, including rental. And there's been a number of moves afoot to try to accelerate the process around uh, the approval process from the large municipalities. It's very slow right now, to be honest. And we've been doing a lot of advocacy work and working with the uh, with the city of Vancouver and the municipalities. Uh, there's about 23 municipalities uh, within our catchment. Vancouver is the largest one, of course, but everything from Whistler to uh, or Coquitlam and Vancouver, uh, the, we've been working with the local governments and uh, the First Nations around different ways to accelerate the, the approval process. Going from thought to actual occupancy, taking seven years for an apartment building to go up is probably unacceptable. That's a long process. And, the, and it's resulting in such a supply crunch and the demand is high and we're adding in the, 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 uh, the immigration, particularly in two regions in the country, it's creating, you know, a, a lot of economic pressure. And generally Canada operates as a regulated free market, but it's putting a lot of pressure on uh, the sort of supply and demand elements of it, this, which is why despite rising interest rates, prices really haven't collapsed like people thought they would have because the demand is so strong and the supply is so limited. So for, for your son, uh, it's a concern. And so, you know, new models, new ways of looking at it, increased supply, and, uh, and then maybe other different approaches. Rentals uh, is increasing rapidly. That could be an angle to do it. And uh, and I think the, the different role of the uh, national banks and other financial institutions may help to change some of these different models. So, so Jack, I mean, you know, um, Recently introducing these two uh, specific, what we would call dilemmas. These are not these are not problems because problems right. have a solution. Dilemmas are complicated; they're complex, they're nuances, and and there's lots to be. And that's exactly the framework that we follow for, uh, you know, for this particular uh, platform we have, which is say hi to the future, where high stands for human ingenuity. And the entire intent there is to catalyze a conversation. So we can start nurturing and cultivating the human side of ingenuity. And so go back into your, your experience, either in, during the time when you were in the music industry, insurance industry, or for that matter, currently the real estate board. Give us some, some thoughts on what's your leadership take on the human side of ingenuity? How do you cultivate it? How do you unleash it in your organization? When has it worked really well? When it hasn't, and what have you learned from it? In the grand uh, macro sense, uh, of, uh, you know, you know, people want to consume music or watch, uh, TV when they want to, or want to binge watch shows, which I was actively involved in those types of things. A lot of it was tied around, you know, everything from bandwidth and technological abilities, like phones, having screens and things like that. And then as those things started to go, we, uh, the idea of having licensing regimes to deal with it became more and more important. And the human ingenuity around that was to look at things differently than what had been done in the hundred years prior. Mm-hmm. For real estate, it's very similar. Real estate's a very conservative industry. It has not changed a lot in the last hundred years or so. Uh, other than putting the old MLS, multiple listing service, the old MLS binders online, much of the industry is very similar to what it was when our parents bought homes in the 70s or 60s or whatever. 
But I think that we're starting to see things, not just around the deal itself, which we talked about a little bit earlier, but new elements around human ingenuity, about new ways of dealing with things, new business models that we just chatted about is one of them. But even things like laneway houses uh, or, uh, you know, the small houses that uh, are in back uh, uh, at the end of the lot, uh, you know, under a thousand square feet, typically, things like that can add a lot of capacity, a lot of supply to it. I think that can be an ingenious way to help deal with some of the supply issues in a very timely way. And a lot of these, for instance, a lot of these smaller homes can be uh, 3D printed and prepared uh, uh, quite rapidly. You need to have appropriate approval and all the rest of it, of course. But with that, I see that as an opportunity to open up a bit of a pipeline to help deal with some of these issues and really using human ingenuity uh, to help deal with it. I was speaking with some folks this morning that what they're looking at doing in Hawaii for Lahane, uh, 3D printed homes and try to accelerate something to replace what's there in record time. You know, and and I don't mean to make light of the situation, uh, but you're absolutely right. A crisis generally precipitates doing something very differently. Uh, And and the two crises that we spoke about, which are close to home, uh, one is affordable housing and the other is all the fires that are, that are raging right now. Um, I think that in itself. So l- let me ask you this slightly differently, which is today, if you want the, these new ingenious thought ideas executed, how is that different from what Jeff would have done as regular running of an operation? So, uh, and that's a great segue. Uh, and we didn't plan this on purpose, but that's a great segue because it brings it back into sort of the micro, how do we operate our businesses, right? And uh, as a leader, I, I really want to try to challenge the status quo and say, why do we do it this way? You know, we've all heard the stories about, you know, uh, people who cut off the ends of roast beef and they ask the mother, well, that's the way grandma did it. And that's the way great grandma did it. And they find out great, great grandma did it because she had a little tiny stove or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then people fall into these types of uh, things. So I, I love challenging the status quo and I like encouraging staff to do that, including affording them appropriate time to do it. And, and uh, recognizing that sometimes things will not work out. Sometimes a, a clever, creative idea just isn't quite there yet, or is too early or not ready or just doesn't work. And you have to accept that that's there because perfection is the enemy of progress. And if you try to get things to perfection, you're not going to progress and you're not going to be able to deal with it. And that includes the big, giant economic things that we're just talking about, but also includes management of small teams uh, or individual projects. If you try to get something to perfect, or if you don't give people an appropriate amount of time to be able to work on different things, you're not going to get that innovation and that creativity. They're going to be head down, trying to just organize them. So at at, uh, at RevGV, at the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver, we've been putting a lot of effort into uh, uh, doing what I call kind of air traffic control so that we're uh, managing the workflow properly. We have the planes coming in at the right time, right people on them, and they're fueled properly for the, for the next thing to go off. So we can organize ourselves well, including having windows of time to do creative thought, look at different models, to talk to different, look at, look at different uses of technology, to look at what other industries have done to solve different things. That's been another learning, right? I moved from one, in, I was in my fifties, I moved from one city and one industry to another city and another industry. And I thought, oh boy, I hope this goes. And it's been reaffirming and uh, exciting. A lot of differences but a lot of similarities and a lot of opportunity around just using that brain power. I, I'm a firm believer in uh, uh, the head and heart. 
If someone's smart, well, uh, willing to work yeah. hard, they can accomplish anything. And and so Jeff, I completely get that. And and uh, and it's because I know when we've had our different conversations. Now that you that is your mindset, and and I'm completely convinced of that. Like I know and I've experienced it. Um, what are some of the challenges you face when you're trying to make something like that, you know, happen? And how do you how do you overcome them? Uh, yeah, what comes in the way? There's a couple of things that come in the way. Uh, sometimes can be inertia, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, some companies or some individuals can just be comfortable the way it is, or or they're nervous, or they're afraid of change. Um, and uh, uh, those are challenges, and and uh, you have to instill the confidence and have folks in, uh, feel comfortable that you're going to have your back. Um, uh, but you know, I I have another sort of thing I I, I believe in. It sounds a little rough, but uh, uh, but I do believe in it. Um, you work with people. Some people are just aren't innovative, and it's just not in their DNA. And there's a role for those folks at different ways of doing things. And you want to have caretakers. You want to have things that keep things going. But for other elements, you uh, you need to have that sort of change mindset and to be able to evolve and move with things, right? You know, uh, Darwin. You know, a lot of people misquote Darwin and say, you know, oh, the biggest survivor ever. No, the ones who adapt are the ones that survive. And uh, and I find that if some people, if you can't change the people, you have to change the people. And sometimes those are tough conversations, you know, and I've learned as a young executive, getting the right people on the bus was really good and really smart. I was too arrogant and I underestimated the impact the wrong people on the bus had. I always thought I can talk them into it. They'll figure it out. Sometimes they just don't. And, uh, and then that ends up being a, a bit of a challenge because they become distracting to other passengers or to the bus driver and those types of things. So you want to have it where people can personalize it and see it. You know, the, the old adage, people hate change, I think is not true. If I told you at the end of our interview here, you're going to uh, get a lot of a winning lottery ticket and, uh, the, you know, you're going to win the Powerball or something like that. That's a monumental change. You're not going to hate it. You might, uh, you might not like the output. You might have trouble with all the people coming out of the woodwork looking for money. But human start- nature, through years of, uh, you know, millennia of, uh, of um, uh, evolution, Change is often viewed as a scary thing. And so negative news gets front front and center. Change is bad. That rustling in the bushes could be a lion. So let's be afraid of things. We have to become more been... confident around that. And you know what? I just looked at my watch. Oh, my God. Sonia is giving me all sorts of indications. Boy, this this half bar has gone fast. <laughs> but uh, but thank you so much. Hey, uh, before, before we let you go, yeah. uh, just a couple of very quick ones. So... If Jeff was to live his life all over again, knowing what he knows today, what would you change? I would spend uh, more time with my parents uh, as uh, uh, as an adult. All right. And we have a certain amount of time with them, and then it's over. What is one um, advice you'd like to give to all other leaders? Really know what your why is, and, uh, why you're doing things, and uh, and what your sort of uh, the value proposition, what you bring to your employees and to your customers, and all the rest of it. And, uh, and then there's two other sort of three little bits I'll give, and, and, and I'm mindful of time. Uh, one is you know, everyone talks about the elevator pitch, right? And have a good elevator pitch, be able to explain it in seven minutes. To be honest, Jacob, I, I like the escalator pitch. You know, if you and I are passing each other on an escalator, I've got seven seconds to get your attention. Hey, what do you do? Why should I do business with you? Because I think we live in a world now where you need to have that type of connectivity and it helps the thought process for you. Like, how do you describe your podcast or your consulting business 
or the real estate board or whatever it is, right? So I think we should move beyond the uh, uh, the uh, 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 elevator pitch and move to escalator pitch and be thinking along those terms. And then the final one, and I've asked, I ask this question a lot, both when I'm interviewing people to hire or when I'm looking for roles myself, I ask people if, if resources were unlimited and I was able to give you a magic wand right now, uh, what would you change about your organization or your life? It is amazing uh, the, some of the answers that you get, I get back. And sometimes that uh, it shows tremendously what their thought process is and what they're focused on. Some people have been very inspirational. Some people have been very strategic. Some people have been deer in the headlight. But I uh, encourage you and and uh, and uh, your your podcast community and such to to maybe give some thought to that and to ask your coworkers sure. and ask your leaders in your company. Hey, yeah, if you had a magic wand, what would you change here? And uh, and I think I think it could be quite uh, quite telling. It, I'm sure it will be. It will be. Is there something that I never got to uh, that you? really wanted to speak to our audience in terms of how they could be uh, better human beings, better professionals, better individuals. You know, there's a speed of sound and a speed of light. I think mm-hmm. there's a speed of business. And I think a lot of businesses struggle with going at the pace and being decisive enough and confident enough to move towards uh, the evolution and leaning on that human ingenuity that here's how we're going to do it. I run into it over and over and over again, almost daily. And I uh, and uh, I think that'd be an area. And if I've ever invited back, I'd be happy to talk to you about that about legacy industries. Some of who have really adapted well, some who have not. But I think uh, that the speed of business is, uh, is another element I would love to impart on yourself and uh, and the community. You are welcome to come back on whenever you have time for us. Uh, it's okay. been an honor to have you with us. Our 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 listeners would love to hear from you. We will tag you on our show notes. Uh, and also the Grill um, uh, Estate Board of Creative Vancouver. Uh, and if people want to reach out to you, uh, we will do so. Uh, we, will, we will make sure that we tag you. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. I have no idea how to time to do um, because the, the conversation was so interesting. Good, good, good. I'm glad. It, I definitely enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm honored to have been here and uh, part of this uh, August community. Thank you all once again for tuning in. You can find all Say Hi to the Future podcast series on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. The Say Hi to the Future podcast series is produced by Sonia Romero, edited by Matt Miller, and special effects by Edward Baskets. Please leave us your thoughts and let us know if there's a guest you want us to have a conversation with.